I dr I'm dragging behind him. So he's dragging me. So I got a wounded gator on a rope attached to my bow of which I can't get my hand out of. And it's dragging me to the water and the guide takes off running after me. And he actually ran all the way up and pulled on the line, got my hand, my arm released. And then he ran with my bow all the way out to his thighs before he snapped the end of that stabilizer piece off and broke it to get it off of my bow. And I'm laying there like, what the? Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 242. Johnny Marie, bucket lists and heavy arrows. Support for the Big Buck Registry and the Deer Hunt Podcast comes from Hunter's Blend Coffee. Awaken your hunt with coffee purchased directly from farmers around the world, creating jobs and alleviating poverty. Hunter's Blend Coffee, we're hunters too. Polar Works Coolers and the Chill Zone, specializing in the most durable, reliable thermal cups and coolers. Keep your drinks hot or cold in any element. Black Ash Outdoor Products reduce your risk of tree stand suspension trauma with a tree stand wingman, the tree stand emergency descender system, the Enforcer. Take control of your odor footprint with your personal ozone generator. Covert scouting cameras, remote cameras for hunting, wildlife, and security. The Horny Buck Seed Gummy. It's all about the freshest seed. Morse's Sporting Goods, a full line of sporting goods without the sales tax. And Big Buck Merch. You can get cool, high-quality Big Buck t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and hoodies. And show support for this podcast by visiting www.bigbuckregistry.com forward slash M-E-R-C-H. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. This is Jeff Trainer from LiveFreeAndTrap.com. You're about to listen to my favorite podcast, the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm Chrissy Titus. I'm co-host of RMES Female Television Show and NRA I Am Forever. Gear up for another amazing episode with Jay and Dusty on the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Asada at iowalandman.com. You are listening to my favorite podcast, the Big Buck Registry. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, fellow predators. My name is Jay. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. For Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller and the entire staff here at the Big Buck Registry, welcome to this week's show. There are a couple things I'd like you to do for us if you could. If you would, please check us out on iTunes. Subscribe and leave us a review. With your help, we're going to try and push this show up the iTunes charts. I know we have a lot of listeners out there and I need you to take some action. I need you to leave a review and subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe, that'll give you access and notification each and every week that a new show is released. You can also access this show in its entirety on YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. It's all right there for you to access on demand at your fingertips. Regarding the harness program, we have an ample supply of harnesses to give away from our volunteer donors. If you're in need of a full body harness, please send an email to j at bigbuckregistry.com. So let's say that one day you were told you only had two years left to live. What would your plan be? 
Amongst your other desires, my guess is that you would probably put a plan together that would fulfill many of the hunts you always wanted to do. The proverbial bucket list would quickly swing into full effect. Turns out this is exactly what happened to Johnny Marie, a native Alaskan who enjoys all the fertile terrain that Alaska has to offer as much as anyone. So away Johnny went on her bucket list hunts, only to find out later, after more evaluation and testing, that her life expectancy was longer than two years due to medical advancements for her particular form of a rare autoimmune disease. Today, Johnny is still fighting a daily battle against the elements, as her condition can often turn her hands paper white when exposed to cold temperatures. But make no mistake, Johnny is far, far from wrapping up her hunting lifestyle. We'll get to our entire interview with Johnny Marie in just one moment, but before we do, let's turn to Jim Keller for the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week, Australian big game hunter resigns from VP position at private club after backlash over trophy photos. This story is from the Fox News website and was reported by Michelle Gant. An Australian businessman and big game hunter has resigned from his role as vice president of a private club after facing backlash for posing with the bodies of animals he shot on safari. The controversial photos and videos surfaced online showing Nick Haridamos, the former exec of Hellenic Club, with several of his kills, including a bull elephant and a baboon he dressed up in sunglasses and a hat. The images were reportedly taken sometime between 2010 and 2016 on a number of trips to Africa and were posted to a public photo bucket account by the user Nick Ha One. They were also shared on Twitter and in an online forum where hunters report their kills, according to the Canberra Times. Haridamos did not deny posting the material, and his lawyer told the Times that all hunting trips were legal. This is a regulated activity which is undertaken in accordance with licenses and quotas issued by the relevant country and is conducted in a manner that does not pose a threat to an endangered species, the lawyer stated. The photos sparked major backlash online, especially among animal rights activists who called the photos appalling. People on social media began calling for a boycott of the Hellenic Club, calling for Heridamos to be removed from the board of the directors. On February 28th, the club posted a statement to Facebook saying Heridamos had resigned. While many were happy to see Heridamos go, a few others commented that despite people's personal feelings over his choice of recreational activities, Haridamos shouldn't be fired for participating in the legal activities. Retailer forced to pull hunting-themed children's costumes from shelves after backlash from parents. This story is from the Fox News website and was reported by Alexandra Diebler. A major British supermarket and retailer has pulled a hunting-themed children's costume from shelves after receiving a series of complaints from parents. Tesco was slammed on social media over a Red Fox Hunter jacket aimed at children aged 7 to 9 by parents, claiming it was encouraging children to take up a highly cruel animal blood sport, the Independent reported. The controversial costume, described as a long-sleeved red tailcoat-style jacket with a single black button at the front, was modeled after traditional fox hunting attire, a sport that has been banned in England since 2005. Parents were quick to call out Tesco for the outfit once it appeared online, saying they were appalled by the costume. Some were in favor of the costume, with one even taking a good-natured jab at the controversy, tweeting, I'm not in favor of fox hunting, but shouldn't we be more concerned that Tesco is promoting pirates, well known for their plundering, raping, and murder? The store quickly responded to the backlash by removing the costume from its online store. We've listened to our customers and have immediately removed this product from sale, a spokesperson told The Independent. 
Fox hunting as a sport dates back to the 16th century in England, but was banned in England and Wales in 2005 by the Hunting Act. It is still legal in other countries around the world, including the United States. Get ready for the world's largest shed hunt. This story is from the Deer and Deer Hunting website and was reported by Chris Behrens. This weekend, March 10th and 11th, you can join the world's largest shed hunt during Shed Rally 2018. Organized by Waitail Properties, the fourth annual weekend event encourages folks to get out and hunt for some shed antlers, to simply enjoy the outdoors as spring approaches, and hopefully introduce a newcomer to what deer hunting is all about. It will be a chance to stretch the legs after a long winter and take in some fresh air, to scout deer hunting land before the new green growth of summer hides last season's deer sign, and with a vigilant eye and some luck to pick up some antlers dropped by a whitetail buck. Plus, you can win prizes by sharing photos of your shed hunting adventures and using the hashtag Shed Rally on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter during the two-day event. The staff at Whitetail Properties will judge the photos and choose the prize winners at the close of the weekend, so do your best to get creative and have fun with it all. For more information, be sure to find all the shed hunting tips on Deer and Deer Hunting's website and on their YouTube page. For any of our Michigan listeners, I will be at the Ultimate Sports Show at DeVos Place in Grand Rapids on Friday, March 16th. As usual, I will be wearing a Big Buck Registry hoodie, so if you see me, please stop and say hi. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. Special thanks to Al- Daniel Applebaum for leads on some of this week's stories. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Well, thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here is Johnny Marie. Johnny Marie, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Where are you at right now? I'm in Alaska. Alaska. Nice. Is it snowing? <laughs> Not currently, but it has been a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're joining us in the studios virtual studios of course uh, we've followed a little bit of your story and i thought we should dive deep and learn a little bit more about you so the world can know who you are too and uh, you, you have a, a pretty interesting story first and foremost i know you're a excellent hunter and a killer at heart which is exactly what we like <laughs> so tell us about yourself where are you from where'd you grow up how'd you end up in alaska so i was actually born and raised here so um, I, my parents actually moved here before it was even a state. So they've been long time Alaskans. Wow, and, no um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm the, the baby of the family. So I have a lot of older brothers and sisters and, um, my parents are older than probably most uh, folks' parents are at my age. So, um, my parents have been up here for a long, long time. And, um, yeah, I was, I was born and raised in Alaska, very typical, you know, uh, true Alaskan upbringing with a father that was a hunting guide and our family ran a commercial fishing um, operation in the summer okay. and right. true Alaskan. <laughs> it sounds true Alaska. That's what I've seen on television. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know a lot of people that grew up in Alaska, but yeah, that's, that's what I kind of envisioned. Somebody, yeah. a hunting guide and uh, making, making a, a living off the land and the sea. That's, that's kind of yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Gotcha. So what, what did you have to do as a kid being around all that stuff? Um, I, and it seemed pretty normal to me. Um, I mean, I, I definitely got to do some really neat things. My father was a amazing bush pilot. So mm. I got to fly to a lot of really, you know, remote areas of the state that a lot of people don't get to do. Um, 
so that that was really cool. He had, you know, um, super cubs on skis and wheels and floats. So we were landing on lakes and glaciers and, you know, all kinds of neat things like that. Um, and then in the summers, um, I worked on our commercial fish site, which was in Kenai, Alaska, which was um, a different city than what I live in. But um, and then, in, you know, in the in the winters, I was in the big city, you know, going to school. So. Gotcha. That's a heck of a childhood. Yeah. <laughs> far, far from uh, video games and uh, and popcorn these days, right? I mean, yeah. That's 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 some pretty hardcore stuff. You're involved. You're get you're getting into the lifestyle right away because that's that's your livelihood of your of your family. Yeah, and it seemed normal to me. <laughs> right, and it would. I mean, kids kids yeah. know normal based off of what they grew up with, and that to you is normal. So. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. When did you realize that that might be a little bit different than the rest of the world? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I was gone. Like I said, I, I would go down and commercial fish with my family um, every summer, you know, all the way from when I was bored all the way through college. I was, you know, I was down there and the, the whole family was expected to work. And it was a, a you know, all summer long job. There were no days off. And, mm. um, I think I, that didn't really register with me until like junior high, high school, when my friends were having these fun summers off and relaxing and I was working every day down there and I was in a different city. Right. You know, we didn't have a TV. We didn't communicate with anybody while we were down there. And I sort of realized, um, Oh, this is a little different than what everybody else is doing. Gotcha. <laughs> but it didn't stop you. Right. I mean, you, you, no, you, I loved it. You I loved mean, it, and you yeah, still I was, love it. I was out on the water. You know, you're getting muddy, or you're, you're out on the water. You know, in your boat, you're working with your family. I mean, very few people get to spend that kind of quality time with their right. family, really, truly. And so, um, our family was very close knit because of that. I have several brothers and sisters, and you know, they're they got married and then their children came and worked so it was a you know there's a huge family component to that and it was awesome gotcha very cool what's your earliest recollection of a hunting experience um i (laughs) probably bird hunting with my dad um at his lodge like he you know we took some i would take some of my little friends in elementary school and stuff and he would fly us down to his lodge which was a long ways away. It was out on the Alaska Peninsula. Mm. Um, so very long flight, you know, down there. And um, and then we would stay down there and um, have our little snowsuits on and go out. And um, he would run out and lean over and he would have us put our guns across his back and we would shoot off of his back <laughs> <laughs> um, for ptarmigan. Ptarmigan. Cool. Okay. So you're hun- hunting <laughs> yeah. ptarmigan, shooting off your dad's back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Boy, times are different, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Very cool. So you, you grew up hunting and fishing and uh, really exposed to the entire outdoor lifestyle in Alaska. Um, where did hunting take you? Like, what? How do you view hunting these days? What's your philosophy? What should it be to somebody? Um, oh, gosh. You know, it, I think that the, um, the hunting industry is, interesting. Um, I've been through all different facets of it. So I've been, you know, the daughter of a hunting guide here. I've, um, I've owned a hunting store here for many years Mm. that I started from the ground up. Um, you know, now I own a a clothing brand that's national, but it's more lifestyle where, um, I've been involved in both the media side and the, and the other side of, of hunting. And, um, I do get a little frustrated sometimes with the 
some of the social media aspects of the direction that hunting's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, sometimes the, the true meaning behind hunting or what I think it should be, what it should be for you, you know, you should be hunting for yourself and there's nothing wrong with, with sharing that with the world and sharing your photos and, and getting out your story. But, but if you're, if you're only doing it to create, uh, you know, an image or to, uh, have photos or to get sponsors or those kinds of things. And I feel like people are doing it for the wrong reasons. It should be to have healthy, organic, wild meat to, you know, you should believe in, in conservation. You should be involved in your, your local, you know, communities or national communities for conservation. And um, I I mean, I definitely have some, some strong opinions on those sorts of things. And sometimes I feel like that gets lost a bit today um, with some of the glamorization of hunting, but I don't, there's nothing wrong with sharing pictures. I love sharing my hunting pictures. I mean, what hunter doesn't want to share their picture and their story and, and connect with other hunters. I think everybody loves that, but sometimes it gets taken a little too far in my opinion. Right. I'd like to, I'd like to take a picture of an animal uh, that I I might've killed and it's more of a memory for me so I can remember the moment and yeah, you you share it with your friends, but I'm not, it's not a bragging rights thing. Yeah. And it, I don't think it should be. I think it's just, it's just a memory capture. Um, I don't, I'm not overly, um, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm not a trophy hunter cause I don't have anything. I have nothing against someone being a trophy hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have any judgment on anyone, however they want to hunt. I don't like when hunters bash on each other for how they choose to hunt. And if, if I went moose hunting and I got a gigantic moose, I'd be super stoked and I would show everybody that photo. Absolutely. Um, but but when I got my moose tag and I went moose hunting, I got a pretty small moose. Now small, I'm talking about antlers because moose are huge right. and there's a lot of meat on him. And he was young and tender and he was excellent eating. And that meat fed my, my family. It fed my parents. And we, um, we, we um, picked some families on the military base that were in need of help and they got some of the moose meat as well. You know, um, and then I had all these people say, why would you shoot a small moose? That's, you know, why would you take a picture of a small moose you shot? Well, I did it on a DIY hunt with my bow. So why wouldn't I take a picture? I was super proud of it. Right. So the, that trophy aspect, I don't, um, I, I, if it's a huge trophy, that's awesome. But if it's not, it's still awesome. Like I, I don't, that part of the, the social media thing, that's kind of what I mean, where I, that part I don't like. I don't like when people bag on each other for, for however they've hunted yeah. or what they've chosen to hunt. The hunt, the hunt is for you. You know, sharing it is, is part of it, but you're hunting for yourself. You think we've lost perspective of what it really is based off of the, the, the life of social media? Um, yeah, a little bit. Okay. I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's too bad. And maybe it'll, and maybe it'll turn around. I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to be more vocal about feeling that way about it. So that tide may change too. Right. Gotcha. Uh, you've had some challenges. Um, you, you love hunting. You've been involved in it your whole life. You seem to have lots of success, um, but you've had some medical issues that have come up. Yeah. Like, can you yeah. talk a, a little bit about what you're dealing with? Yeah. So um, I'll backtrack a little and just say like in um, years ago, my husband and I were both working two jobs and we ended up you know, we decided we wanted to open an archery store here and, um, we really, um, went all in on that thing, you know, and it was, um, we started small and we grew it to the largest 
archery store in the state. And we put a ton of time and energy into that. I was there a hundred hours a week, like um, running a children's homeschool in the morning for archery, then opening the store and running the store all day long. And then at night after we closed, we'd run youth leagues and adult leagues and we were running lessons out of there. And on the days that we were technically closed, I was running seminars in there. I mean, we were there all the time and we were working so much that um, you just didn't really have time for anything else. And I started noticing initially just that my breathing was, was getting weird that I was just panting more doing certain activities and stuff. And I literally just thought, man, I'm just working so much. I'm getting out of shape or something. I didn't really realize what it was. And then, you know, at night when I was driving home, I would notice that my hands would turn white, just like, like a dead person's hands, like white, white, like no blood in them at all. Hmm. And it would become really painful. And it it was cold in my car because my car had been, I'd been at the store for 14 hours. So my car was cold and I was just blaming it on holding onto the cold steering wheel. And so slowly these little symptoms started happening. I blacked out a couple of times. I ended up in the ER, couldn't breathe. You know, I wasn't getting enough oxygen and we really didn't know what was going on. And then, Hmm. um, I got some, they did some blood tests on me. They sent me to a neurologist. And um, honestly, I'll never forget the day that I got my diagnosis because I I really, I was just so busy. And I just felt like, you know, there's something minor wrong. Pop me a pill, send me back to work. Right, you know, right. I just the thought, old, there's the nothing old, to yeah, this. Well, just, like, just give me the medicine, right? Yeah, what do I need? Some antibiotics or something? Like, give me those so right. I can get back to work and do my job. And right. Dave was actually overrunning the store. And I had had a friend come in and cover for me, you know, at the store. And our store was big. I mean, it was a 6,000 square foot place. Huge indoor range, all the brands. You know, mm. we were a big store. I, I didn't want to be away from there. So I'm sitting there kind of tapping my foot being like, come on, come on, come on, let's get this done, you know, and, and the guy starts in, you know, you've got this rare disease, and this is very serious. And you're the fastest progressing case I've ever seen in my life. And, Hmm. and I've only seen three cases in my life. And, um, you know, I just remember the room got super, super blurry. And he, he was talking, but it was almost like someone you could hear someone underwater talking. It was the weirdest, um, feeling, because what he was saying didn't go with what I had, what I thought I was going to hear. And my brain just, I just couldn't deal with it. Right. I just, just shielded it, to deflect it out. Like yeah. You didn't like, want to hear it. What it yeah. yeah. I just, and then I remember him grabbing my shoulder and kind of shaking me and he goes, are you even listening to what I'm saying? And I kind of snapped back and he said, are you taking this seriously? I'm telling you, you got two years left. Mm. And I'm looking at him like, the f- are you talking about like like <laughs> what <laughs> i just it couldn't i couldn't I, I just couldn't even process it and he's trying to go through stuff and you've got to go get this test and you've got to go get this test and you're you it's likely that you're long you know most people that have this illness generally either you know they end up in a hospital bed they can't breathe and their lungs collapse or you're going to go into renal failure in your kidneys and i'm just i just everything's going through my mind. Dave and I had sunk everything we had into opening that archery store. Right. I mean, we just, and we're the ones running it. He can't run it without me. We're there a zillion hours a week, you know? And, and I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking my life is just collapsing around right. me, just completely collapsing. And, uh, you know, the, I never, I didn't cry, nothing. I was just in shock. And I, I remember going all the way out. I got in my car and just went like hysterical bawling. And then Dave was at the store. So I was afraid to call him 
I didn't want to call my mom because I didn't know how to tell her that. So I called my best friend and she later said if there wasn't such a thing as caller ID, she would have had no idea who was on the phone. Cause you, I was like, <laughs> you know, when you no cry kidding. and you okay. can't even catch your breath, I'm like thinking, you know, and I'm saying, they told me I'm not gonna live. You know, I'm just like panicking and she's like, where are you? Don't drive your car right now. I'm coming to get you. Right. You know, it was just, right. and then in, in the coming weeks after that, I, I still had to go back and, and work a hundred hours a week and smile at people and help them pick their, out their bows and teach them how to shoot and, you know, all those things. And, and Dave and I've got that, you know, in the back of our minds, I was just, I was totally devastated. I tried, I told my mom over the phone and then I would go to her house. My father was, had Alzheimer's at the time and he was very, very ill. And my mother was caretaking for him at home. And I felt so guilty placing an additional burden on her. I mean, she had so much burden to carry. And the first three times I tried to look her in the face, I went to her house. I rang the doorbell. She opened the door. I looked at her. I started crying and said, I can't and turned around and left. And I felt so bad, but I couldn't even, I just couldn't even look at her because I just, I felt like I was just burdening her with something more and um, things just spiraled worse. I started losing more of my lung capacity. I started having issues with myesophagus. So the, the disease, it's an autoimmune disease and, um, it's a, it's a form, it's a form of, um, scleroderma. There's multiple forms of scleroderma. This one is called crest and crest attacks five major organs. So it attacks your lungs, your kidneys, your esophagus, um, your circulation in your heart. And so they were doing all these tests, monitoring my decline and my circulation just spiraled worse and worse. And my lungs were really the, the one, the things that were worst at that time. Mm. And I was fighting to get into the Mayo Clinic in um, Arizona because they have a, a specialist there that just studies this disease. And no one up here in Alaska knew what to do with me. I was getting incorrect information. I was getting, I was having to go to all these, I was having to go to a separate lung doctor, a separate heart doctor, a separate circulation doctor. And, and each one wasn't communicating with each other. And I just wanted a team. And we just fought and fought and fought to get me into the Mayo Clinic, um, to get treatment. And, um, in the meantime of all this, we decided we've got to sell our archery store because if I've only got maybe two years left to live, and we're over there working 100 hours a week. My husband and I thought, we're going to make bucket lists, and we're going to go out, and we're going to hunt our asses off. We're going to spend as much time as we can together. We're going to do everything that we ever wanted to do because this is all we have. This is the only time we have left right, together, right, you know? Right. And so we're going to just go for it, balls to the walls. We're just going to go do all the things we always wanted to do. So we we got very, very lucky and, and chatted with some friends who wanted to buy our archery store and, you know, went through that process of selling it. And then I finally got into the Mayo Clinic and got down there and went through all this testing. And then the doctor there says, you're not going to die in two years. At this point, it already been a year. So you're not going to die in a year. He said that is old antiquated information. There is so much that we've learned about this disease. There's so much that we're doing, so much experimentation. We can put stem cells into your lungs. You know, we can regrow tissue. We can, there are things that we can do, you know, um, for your kidneys. And, and he said, you know, that's not going to happen. They had me on the wrong medication up here, which was making me sicker. You know, I went down there, they got that corrected. Um, And so all of a sudden I'm like, 
holy crap, we just sold this archery store that was our baby. We worked our asses off to build this thing for seven years from nothing. Right. The biggest store in the state. It was everything to us. And we just sold it because this guy up here in Alaska told me I had two years to live. Right. But wow. so the whole thing was like, it was just devastating. But, the, you know, they said, it's not that it, we can't stop it. It's not stoppable and it's not curable. So you are going to continue to get worse and, okay. and everything you lose, you can't get back. So at this point, for example, I've lost 28% of my lung capacity. I'm not getting that back. Right. All I can do is, is hope to plateau or, or remission, but I, I can't get back what I've lost. And so, okay. um, I think I still believe that it was God's plan. And I still believe that it was for the, for the best that we sold it because it's allowed me to regularly go and get treatment to really, really focus on my health, which has slowed the disease down some for me, which has been huge. It's allowed Dave and I to spend some amazing time together and allowed me, you know, that year I went and killed 11 animals with my bow. Right. <laughs> I, went, I went a little all out because I just thought, I don't know what my lungs are going to be like. Am I going to be able to hike up this mountain or not? I better get it done right now. So I just went, you know, kind of all out on that. And, and so I think, um, you know, it has, it's affected how I hunt, but, um, but I'm not letting it stop me. And I, I don't think that modern medicine takes into account the perseverance of the person, the determination of your heart, that your inner strength and your faith in God, because there is some serious power behind prayer. And I believe that a hundred percent. And so I don't think that they were prepared for how determined I am <laughs> Right, <laughs> the, it's not slowing me down and it's not taking my life. So I've just um, sort of decided that it's not going to kick my ass basically. Gotcha. And I'm not letting it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so for a brief moment in time, operation bucket list was full speed ahead. Yes. <laughs> and then it came to a screeching slowdown because you're like, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, we're like, oh, okay, well, we have more time. Um, there are certainly, you know, there's some some hunts that I just can't do anymore um, okay. physically. And because the circulation stuff has gotten so incredibly bad, um, you know, I've lost feeling in several of my fingers. And this disease does go in a direction where you end up losing fingers, losing toes. It's very, very common for, for your hands and feet to ulcerate um, because you lose, I lose circulation constantly mm. in, in the, I mean, it, it only takes a second for me to, to have a, a very bad episode or, okay. um, you know, I have issues with choking and issues with my kidneys and things. And so I have had to change the way that I hunt. Um, and so I'm glad that I knocked out some, some bucket list, you know, type of hunts that I wanted to do early on before I had progressed even to the point that I'm at now. Gotcha. Has, where has it affected your hunting the most? Have you had any experiences in the field where you're like, well, that was a close one. Yeah. So, um, it's affected me in a couple ways. And I would say the biggest one is the circulation issue. And I'm really stubborn. Part of it is because I, I have that mindset where I don't want the disease to kick my ass. So I feel like I, I have a hard time saying, no, I can't do something. Mm -hmm. So I end up putting myself in, <laughs> bad situations where it, it can become dangerous for me. And, um, and it, I, I need to work on that basically, but just for example, um, things that wouldn't be dangerous for someone else. So, um, just this past year, um, HHA is a, a company that I staff for. They're a, a site company and, um, the guys are that 
the people that own it are absolutely amazing, like amazing, amazing people, so kind-hearted. And um, their staff coordinator, Paul, knew about my disease, and um, he's just an amazing guy. And he had a hunt lined up um, for whitetail in November that he was doing, and he ended up giving me that hunt because he knew that I've never shot a whitetail, which everybody thinks is insane. So I've shot 24 <laughs> animals with my bow. I've shot brown bear, black bear, moose goat whatever but i've never gotten a deer hunt one because i'm from alaska you know so right, yeah no not, I, not, we don't have any white tail right, running around here right so um so he's like what you never shot a white tail and you know you're doing this bucket list you have to shoot a deer you know so he ends up putting me in his spot for this hunt and i started kind of looking into it and i'm like that's november in wisconsin that's like really cold right. really cold and um i have gotten to the point i mean you say what you, you live in Alaska, but no, I, I'm, we're getting ready to move to Arizona because of my disease. One, I need to be closer to better medical care, but two, I'm losing the ability to go outdoors, um, because of these circulation issues. And right. for a person that loves the outdoors, it's like torture. I mean, it's really awful for me. And so going to Wisconsin on a, a deer hunt in November was brutal. You know, ahead of time, we, I told the guide, you know, I have these circulation issues and you're really going to have to work with me. It's going to be very difficult um, for me to be out in a blind and these things. And I think not knowing me, they thought, ah, it's a chick that gets cold easy. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, she's a whiner. She's just a chick that gets cold easy. And then, you know, I roll up in there and um, tell them a little bit about myself. And they literally see when I step outside, my hand goes from red to like a whitish green and becomes painful and um they they had me out one night and my toe went so white that it ended up going black it turned totally black and um i could barely walk and they sort of saw in those first couple of days like this ain't no joke like she isn't just some chick that gets cold easy i mean i was wearing um full prowess everything you know thick jacket vest i had hand warmers stuck in every nook and cranny hats you know, you name it. I had, then I had a heater bodysuit over top of yeah. all of my gear sitting inside of that and was still losing full circulation where my feet were going black wow. and where my That's hands were crazy. going out. Yeah. I mean, that, so then they, they sort of went, Oh, you have like major health problems. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, this is not a joke. Right. Like I should not physically be out here and the worst part was breathing that cold air my lungs would go into vapospasms so the pain I would come back to camp and my lung I just felt like someone was sitting on my chest and all night long I couldn't sleep I'm coughing I'm hacking and my lungs the pressure on my chest was so bad and I call my husband like three four days into it and he's like you know you don't have to go out again like you can just be done. <laughs> like you don't have to prove anything to anyone. What are you doing? You right. know, I'm like, no, I have to go back out. You know, it's just stupid. It was, but I, it, after it was over, I dealt with major health issues for weeks afterwards. I mean, I got severely, severely ill and I thought, okay, maybe, maybe there's some things I can't do anymore. That's hard for me. Like I don't, I don't want people to think I'm a pussy and I don't want to think I'm a pussy. I want to, I'm, I was raised by a guy that was a hard hunter and I want to be a, a, you know, someone that hunts hard. So that stuff has been a real challenge for gotcha. me to admit to myself. Right. Um, right. And, and is going to continue to affect, you know, the way that I hunt and the, and the choices that I make. And sometimes I'm just going to have to say no. Right. Right. Gotcha. 
So. I, I want to turn the, the mic over to Dusty here for a little while because I'm curious to find out like some of the techniques and strategies that you're using when you're going on these hunts and, and how do you see these strategies and techniques changing uh, in the future as, as you continue to deal with some of the challenges that you're facing with your autoimmune disease that you have to wake up every day and say, Hey, I, I want to, I'm going to go hunt. Cause you've got some, you know, you have that hunter inside of you. It's like, I'm going to go hunting. And then you've got this, this thing you got to deal with. It's, it's hitting you yeah. in the face. What am I going to do? How am I going to change my strategies and techniques to a, be successful in the field, but eight, but B don't end up in the hospital like you did, uh, in Wisconsin because it's cold out. Yeah. It's going to make for a super interesting chat here because things things are different in your world johnny that that most people uh take for granted that they can handle the cold better i'll, I'll start out do you, do you carry a backpack in the field yeah i do always Let, let's let's pretend like we've got this thing in our hands and we're going to crack the zipper on it and start pulling <laughs> out everything let's let's hear what's yeah. in your backpack <laughs> i've got um probably different stuff than but i mean obviously all your basic stuff like your rangefinder and your you know, water and all that kind of stuff. But I carry, um, you know, whether I'm doing a spot and stock hunt or I'm in a blind or in a tree stand or whatever, I've probably got at least a minimum of 10 packages of hand warmers (laughs) in, in there and not like the little ones, like the big body warmers, because I'm opening them, shaking them up and I have three to four activated on my core at all times. Um, because part of the way that my circulation shuts down is if my core um, catches a, a little breeze, um, my body goes into almost like if you were out in the wild and your body wanted to pull energy or blood into your core to save your core, you know, and you, it would pull it out of your limbs. Um, that's basically what my body does. But from a breeze, just from a little bit, you know, it starts pulling from my hands, from my feet, from my face. And so I try to keep my core warm warm all the time. So I'm running around even when it's 50 degrees out. I've got a whole bunch of um, hand warmers in there. Um, I've I've started to have like, I have to have a mitt um, around my hand to try to retain the, the heat on my bow hand. Um, so that's something unusual again, even when you would think it might be warm, my, my break point's 55 degrees. So anything under 55, um, I start to have episodes. So I suppose that's something different that most people don't have in their, um, backpack as well. What else is in Uh, there? Dig deep. Inhalers. (laughs) Um, inhalers are in there for breathing issues, steroids for my lungs. Um, and then all your basic hunter stuff, everything else is. You know, all the, all the, all the stuff that you would normally carry, like as a bow hunter, you know, sometimes I have a backup release depending on how far I'm away from camp or what I'm doing and, you know, some first aid supplies and some snacks and, uh, I don't know, <laughs> so do you got all like that a... kind of stuff. layers, lots of layers because I'm putting on or taking off, um, layers constantly. So has this thing got a motor or anything to haul it around for you or... <laughs> It's heavy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds super interesting. I mean, you know, it, it's amazing how somebody can adapt to a, what you know what they got going on in their life, and it, it sounds like your backpack definitely will uh, be very beneficial in, in your conditions. <laughs> Let, let's get in a yeah. you know as a, with a circulation issue. I want to know what kind of camouflage that you found that that actually works and keeps you warm. It's hard. Um, I experiment a lot with it. Um, so. 
Um, I always have merino wool closest to my skin, um, almost in any, I mean, unless I'm in really hot weather or something, but um, almost in anything I'm wearing uh, merino wool, you know, close to my skin for sure. Um, and then I, I just, lots of layers. I don't ever rely on just, you know, one, one jacket or one layer of, of clothing. I have multiple layers in there. And like I said about my core, um, I'm always concerned about keeping my core warm. So I'm, I've always got vests, sometimes two layers of vests. I actually, I own a heated vest. So, um, you know, I have equipment like that where it's got wires that run through it. It actually has a battery pack um, on it. Sometimes I might layer that in and not have it on, but have it for emergencies. If I, something happened and I, you know, couldn't get back to camp or whatever, then I could activate that um, for an emergency situation. Because if I lose... I lost circulation. When I lose circulation for long periods of time, it damages my hands. And that's why, um, like I had an incident on a Idaho bear hunt and, um, I lost feeling permanently in a couple of my fingers. And, um, so I try, I've learned, you know, um, from different hunt experiences, you know, about, about layering like that. Um, Press has some really awesome layers for ladies that actually fit. So you're not, you know, you, you want a bunch of layers on, you want to be warm, but you still need to be able to hike and draw your bow back and not have it be, you know, super bulky and stuff. So, um, and then I, I live in Kenetrek boots. They're my favorites. And I just get the ones with the, the heaviest thinslet. And then I put, you know, layers of foot warmers and things um, down in them. And sometimes I've got hand warmers tucked in around my ankles as well to kind of keep that heat going down in there. That's amazing that uh, <laughs> it must take you some time to get, get yourself uh, prepped to go out. I mean, that that's. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> when you talk about layers. I want to dig into that a little bit more just because it's something that, uh, you know, with, with, it, it's kind of opportunity here for us to talk about it because you've got to stay warm. There's there's no way around that you've got to stay warm. You say you go wool to the skin. What do you what do you top the wool with next and kind of break us run us through that and break that down? It, I mean, it depends where where I'm hunting at and uh, what kind of hunt I'm doing and whether I'm going to be. I mean, if I'm sitting, if I'm going to be like in a tree stand or something like, um, you know, we had a bear camp and we were doing bear black bear baits and stuff um, here for a while and. Um, even when it's 40, 50, you know, 50 degrees, you'd think, oh, that's, that's fine. If I'm going to be sitting and not moving around, then I'm putting on a ton of layers. So, you know, with, with merino wool, then I've got another, you know, maybe fleece, um, style layer over that. And then I've got either, um, you know, a vest under and then a vest over that layer as well. And then I might have one to two jackets on, like I might have a regular, um, down like a 700 fold down jacket and then a, a rain gear layer you know a packable rain gear layer over that if it's raining or something um i look like a big friggin marshmallow but i'm definitely not one of those chicks that cares what i look like in the field so um, if mismatch camo you know I, whatever whatever works is what i'm wearing i don't care what i look like so right. you know um i have some funny pictures i took like a selfie in the blind and sent it to my friend in the when i was in wisconsin and i had two layers of face masks on so i had like a like a real tree, um, you know, face mask. And then I had that big fuzzy, um, Sitka face mask, like their most dense one. I had that over it and I had 
hand warmers stuffed in my cheeks because <laughs> I was having a lot of issues of losing circulation in my face. And um, I was, my eyes were swelling. So sometimes when I lose a lot of circulation in my face, my eyes will swell up. And so I had hand warmers stuck in on the sides of my cheeks in between the two layers of face mask. And I used foot warmers because they have sticky backs and I actually had stuck them to my face on either side. So I just get creative. <laughs> I envision all this. <laughs> well, it's not pretty. It's right. a good thing I'm not one of those people that has a camera following me around because people will be laughing, but right. I still they get say, it done. <laughs> as, you, as you get older, you say it's not about how you how you look, it's how you feel, you know? And you got to stay that's warm. Right. That's, that's right. That's, we understand. And if you can't if you can't stay warm and you can't stay out there, then you can't finish your hunt. So right, right, right. You know. right. So, you do so what you gotta do. Just, just curious. Does your everyday activities at home, and you're going, let's say you're going to the grocery, do you have to prep yourself a little bit yes. different than most? Yep, I do. Um, so I, it's not uncommon for me to have. Like I use hand warmers every single day. I buy them by the case. Um, yes. So I, you know, if you you know, went out to dinner with me and I was going to drive over there and meet you in Alaska. Um, I'd have activated hand warmers in my pockets. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't know it, but I'd have them there. And, um, right. even throughout the dinner, I might, you know, if we're sitting close to the door and someone keeps swinging the door open and a breeze is catching me, I might feel myself start to have an episode and, and grab a hold of one in my pocket. So yeah, just going to the grocery store, I'm affected. And it's, it's truly made me feel like a bit of a shut in, you know, I, there are things day to day things that I feel like I have started to avoid doing with my life here in Alaska. Now in this last year, it's gotten bad enough where, you know, I, I own an online clothing company. We have a lot of orders online. If orders need to be run to the post office, a lot of times my husband's doing that because I don't want to go through the process of suiting up and doing hand warmers and getting layers and preheating the car and, you know, to go over and just go to the post office. So he's taking care of a lot of those kinds of things. And it's really, you know, it affects you. If you want to, if I want to go out to dinner with a girlfriend and it's 20 degrees out, well, if I drive downtown and I park and I go into a restaurant, when I come out, my car is freezing cold. I have to walk in the cold to get there. Now I'm going to have episodes when I go out. I'm going to have vapospasms in my lungs. My lungs are going to ache. My hands are going to go out. That's painful. You know, you end up avoiding those some of those scenarios just because of the pain factor on it and that it makes me mad at myself that I allow the disease to do that um, but that's also part of the reason why we are going to make this move to Arizona which is crazy for a girl that's born and raised in Alaska to move to Arizona sometimes I think I am nuts but <laughs> but we're going to go for a whole other extreme and I think that my quality of life is going to be a lot better because I'll be able to go out and shoot my bow in the yard a lot more than I can at this point in this um, disease. I just, um, I don't want it to affect, you know, my outdoor lifestyle. Yeah, that could, that could play make sense. And, you know, I wanted to dig into a little bit there and, and I'm glad you talked us through that. And it just makes sense that you're, you're making the move. I, obviously Alaska is beautiful and most wonderful place in the world. It sounds like, but uh, you know, with your condition that, that, Totally makes sense. So once you get to Alaska, you talk about shooting your bow. What, what kind of bow do you shoot? So um, I shoot 
I have several different expedition bows. Um, I have an SS Explorer and I have an Eccentric 6. I actually have two Eccentric 6. I have a lot of bows. I have a bunch of recurves and um, I like striker um, long bows. So I have a couple of striker long bows and then I have some of my father's old um, recurves too. So I kind of change it up back and forth. But for a compound, um, I've shot the most animals most recently with the um, eccentric six. And I like that bow a lot because I'm pretty short. I'm only five foot three. Um, I've had, I, um, something happened with my disease. I was trying to get my circulation back one time and I actually ripped my um, rotator cuff on my right, <laughs> my right shoulder, but it's a partial tear. And so I haven't been able to actually get it fixed because it didn't tear all the way through. And so I can't pull as much weight as I used to. I just go and I get injections into it to kind of keep me going. Like if I'm going on a hunt or whatever, I'll get a steroid injection in my shoulder. But I'm only pulling like 52 to 54 pounds, which is, I mean, it's decent. That's a a normal amount of weight for a lady. But with a, a short draw and then not that much poundage, for the kind of hunting that I want to do for big game, I need, you know, that extra energy. And so that, that, um, eccentric six, the reason that I picked that bow is it's a really fast bow. And so I was able to get more speed out of that and, and therefore, you know, um, a little more punching power, even with a, you know, only a 25 inch draw. Gotcha. Any particular arrow you like to use? I like a full note. Well, it depends what I'm, what I'm hunting, but I would say 99% of the time I'm shooting a full metal jacket. Um, I know a lot of people are firm believers in, you know, light arrows and all that, but I'm not one of those people. I like a heavy arrow. Um, I like to, to punch really hard and punch all the way through. So um, I'll shoot a heavy arrow all day. And if that means that I got to get a little bit closer, I got to stock in a little bit more, uh, my effective yardage is shorter because it's heavy, then that's fine. But I'm a firm believer in a heavy arrow. With that heavy arrow comes a heavy broadhead. What kind of broadhead do you prefer? Um, so I'm like insanely crazy for the QAD Exodus. Um, I have taken almost everything that I've ever shot with that um, broadhead. And um, I feel so confident in them um, going from my field point to them. They should exactly like um, my field point, but what I like about them is how they, you know, are you familiar with them, how the, the shaft of the arrow kind of sits up inside them. So yes. the, the ferrule is really short. And so, um, just from owning an archery store for a long time, what I, what I saw, what I noticed over the years with people shooting all different broadheads was, you know, when you get something with a real long ferrule on it, um, you tend to have some drift, um, some planing at some of your longer yardages. Um, and um, when you get a something that's that's short like that, Exodus, um, you don't have that. It just flies real true, like my field point. It's also, it's a, a those are a thicker than normal um, uh, blade on them. You know, they're just a little bit thicker. And so um, a lot of blades are like the 0.029. There's like the 0.035. So when you get a little bit thicker 
blade and you do hit bone, you know, there's less of a chance of you chipping the blade. So just for example, when I took my brown bear, I did a quartering away shot, you know, it, it goes through, it comes out through the shoulder, it busts the shoulder bone, goes all the way through. Now, mind you, I've got a 25 inch draw. I'm shooting, I was shooting 52 pounds at that time to bust all the way through a brown bear shoulder, come out the other side and the blade wasn't even chipped. Um, and it double lunged him. And I just, you know, you see that on a hunt and why, why would you put another broadhead on your arrow after that? You know, I just am just a firm believer and, and just time and time again, when I have taken big animals, you know, like a, like a kudu is thick, a big, thick, heavy animal or a zebra with that thick hide and you punch through it with one of those things and it's a one shot kill and you just over and over. I just, I love that broadhead. It's my favorite. You'd have to, I don't know how you'd get me to shoot anything else at this point. Very good. So we got in your bows and your in your camouflage, what what tree stand do you prefer? A hang on, climber, ladder, or ground blind? Um, uh, so I would rather spot and stalk all day long, any day. I get fidgety and antsy as hell in a tree stand or a blind. That being said, I am a big weenie for heights. So ladder stand, and if that sucker's double wide, even better. I hate heights. I hate being up there. I get nervous. <laughs> I don't like it at all. So um, I'm a big wussy about that. <laughs> I, I feel you. I'm not a fan of heights myself. <laughs> it definitely uh, it makes things different when you're up in the air and you're not you don't like it. It, it makes your hunt. You know, you're nervous from the just from being in a tree stand, let alone you know when the animal yeah. comes in. From, but I think yeah, too, you know, uh, I. I Probably, you know, if I'd grown up in the Midwest or something where you're in a tree stand all the time, I would be used to it. But, you know, if you're, you're not, you're not hunting moose out of a tree stand or you're not hunting caribou out of a tree stand. I don't know. It's, it's not as common here. You do hunt black bear out of a tree stand a lot of times here, but it's just, it's not as common, I think, as it is for folks that maybe, you know, grew up hunting deer and stuff. So it's something that I'm not as used to. And certainly if I did it more, I'd probably get a little more comfortable with it, but it's just not as familiar to me. Yeah, definitely different in different areas in Alaska. You know, it's, it's not a tree stand state, really. Yeah, it really, it, we didn't sell tree stands at our store. And like I said, we were a big store, but we didn't, we didn't sell them there. They do sell them at some of the big sporting goods stores here, but it's, it's just not as common. You know, you're not hunting sheep out of it or goat out of it or whatever. So you just don't, you don't use them as much here. Right. Uh, how many different species are in Alaska? Oh, um, I don't know. I'd have to name them. <laughs> I don't. I don't know the count, but um, there's a lot. A lot of options to hunt here. A lot of things you got to draw a tag for, but but there's a lot of options up here. And certainly, you know, you have an advantage as an Alaskan because um, for a non-resident to come up here and hunt a lot of these species is insanely expensive. You know, um, there are certain species that you have to be with a guide for. Um, you know, like doll sheep and brown bear, and and you're going to pay a lot to come up as a non-resident. Where you know, I can I can draw a tag and go out and hunt on my own for those things. Gotcha. So you can self-hunt without a guide if you're a resident. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we covered you and got into your gear and techniques, and I'm going to touch base on a little bit about uh, about your dad and and kind of can you take us down that road how your dad got started and and where he once he got established, went. Yeah. Um, so he's my total hero. Um, it was totally, it just devastated me when I lost him last year. So 
um, I, um, I really, really just looked up to everything that he did and, 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 um, his outlook on hunting and, and everything, but he, he started off, um, he was from Colorado. He moved to Montana and did a lot of hunting there and he wanted to hunt in Alaska. And, uh, he told my mom, you know, if we move up there, we'll only stay until I'm done hunting. <laughs> so she always laughs about that because, um, you know, he, he got her up here and they never left and she, she would bring it up from time to time and he would say, well, I'm not done hunting, <laughs> but they never left. So, and he just loved it here and he, he loved hunting here and he, um, he started off, um, he was a teacher and, uh, he taught shop at the high school and he was a wrestling coach. And on the weekends he started um, doing a little bit of guiding and he ended up getting his um, guides license and, um, and then retiring from teaching and going full, full blown into guiding. But he was, um, he got license number 35 in the state of Alaska. So he was the only the 35th guide license ever to be issued in the state of Alaska, which I think is, um, is pretty neat. And um, he actually ended up helping write the guide test that they use um, still today um, for guides to get their license, um, which I also thought was pretty neat. But he um, he guided in the Wrangell Mountains for quite a long time um, for doll sheep. And then um, the feds came in and took a bunch of that land and made it um, so that you can't uh, you can't hunt in a lot of areas in the Wrangles. And so he ended up moving down to the Alaska Peninsula and he got a, he bought a lodge down there and uh, down there is really known for the brown bears, but caribou and, and moose hunting too. And so um, he was taking, you know, his clients were taking some really big uh, brown bears off the Alaska Peninsula. They're not, I went, they're not quite as big as Kodiak, but you can definitely get some, you know, 10 and 11 foot uh, brown bears down there. And uh, he ran that operation for a long time. So he's a hunting guide over 40 years um, here. And um, he was honored as the um, with the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Alaska Professional um, Hunters Association here, which is their, their guide um, operation here. He got their Lifetime Achievement Award. And he also got the um, Safari Club International um, Professional Hunter of the Year Award at the National Convention as well. Um, he was honored there and he was just, he was really well known for being a very, very ethical, um, guide. He was amazing, um, bush pilot, really, really talented, um, bush pilot flying on the Alaska peninsula is no joke. I mean, the winds down there are crazy. And I don't know if you're familiar with the train, but there's no trees down there to, there's nothing blocking the wind. It's just tundra. And uh, the winds whip through there, horrific. And if you can fly down there, you can pretty much fly, you know, anywhere. And um, he was a really great bush pilot. He actually, I remember when I was a kid, um, a couple of times they called him for search and rescue rescue stuff where their um, pilots couldn't get in um, to save people that were in bad situations. And he went out, even landed on a sandbar one time to to save some people. So he did some pretty neat stuff. Um, with his planes, um, he really flew that super club like it was a extension of himself. And um, and then after he sold the lodge, um, you know, he he started to get ill. Not too long after that, he did some personal, you know, hunting for himself as well. He um, he was an avid hunter himself, and he he hunted a lot of stuff. Like he took when he was younger, he took everything you could think of with that recurve bow. Like it just amazes me that 
he could get close enough to take a doll sheep with a recurve and a, you know, and a black bear and multiple caribou and moose and goat and, you know, all these different species that he took with his recurve. As he got older, he would switch off to his gun and um, he eventually ended up taking a world slam um, of sheep, which is uh, 12 species of sheep. And then, but he actually took 24 total sheep because many sheep he took multiples of like seven doll sheep and two stone sheep. And, you know, it was different back then. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a forty fifty thousand $50,000 hunt. He actually like, for example, he flew his own bush plane into Canada and hunted, you know, over in Canada for stone sheep. Like you can't do that stuff anymore. So it's kind of a, you know, it was a different world back then. Um, and, um, sheep hunting was just, you know, everything to him. He, um, he sat on the national board of directors for foundation North American wild sheep. And he was, um, the 98th member ever for, for that, um, foundation, which I thought was neat. They did a memorial to him last year and they actually looked that up and contacted me and told me that. And he was at the very first meeting that, that they ever had, um, and, and helped them kind of establish that organization as well. So I thought, that was kind of cool too. Um, just, I mean, I could go on and on about him. I just look up to him so much, all the, all the things that he, um, did. And, um, I have tons of amazing stories of, of how he helped others, how he helped other guides get on their feet. I mean, he took so many young guides under his wing and taught them and helped finance them so they could get their own areas. Um, and, um, he just, he really did some pretty amazing things for the hunting community here, um, in Alaska and nationally. One hell of a guy. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Just, you know, just listen to your energy, talk about him. Uh, you can just tell that there was a love and, and a trust and, uh, uh, you looked up to him like no other. And that, that's amazing. Uh, Johnny for, you know, kind of opening up and, run us through where he had gone and had been and where he brought himself to. And wow, that's all. Wow. Is all I can say to that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, you know, he came, he came from a, you know, a family with a ton of kids in it. They were dirt poor, you know, they were lucky if they got an orange for Christmas and most, most Christmases they didn't get anything. And, um, you know, living on this little tiny farm in Colorado and, and he really, showed that if you have a dream and something you want to do and accomplish in your life that you can do it you know you can set out and you can set your mind and do it and i i always keep that in mind absolutely yeah i mean that that's uh that's words to live by no doubt about it uh it, you know yeah. put your mind, put your mind to something and you can accomplish a lot of things and wow just amazing it almost uh one of where we wish we could talk to your dad today just just by listening to you that he was you know, just a great gentleman and somebody that cared about conservation and cared about wildlife and everything that uh, the Big Buck Registry represents. And wow, just amazing, amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Jay, you want to get into uh, taking Johnny on, on a memorable hunt? Yeah, or maybe Johnny can take us on a memorable hunt. <laughs> yeah. Even better. Wow. The, uh, I, I see so much of your dad and you after you described them. Like, you know, you're, you're definitely kin there's no question about that no i appreciate that thank you very cool so on on the show obviously we like to have somebody tell us a really good deer story and you've been on some so many other hunts other than deer hunts i think we should probably explore something different that sure that you've been (laughs) on and uh we 
just give us some details. You know, slow it down, play by play, so we're it's like we're there with you. Where are we going to go on this? Where are we going to go <laughs> um, with you? I don't know. Well, since actually after you just after what you just said, um, maybe I'll tell you my alligator hunt story because there's um, something right at the end of that hunt that kind of ties into what you just said about my dad. So okay. maybe I'll tell All you right. All right. about I'm my in. alligator. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so. I don't know exactly how I got it in my head that I really, and this was before my illness. So this was a little bit ago, but, um, I got it in my head that I wanted to shoot an alligator with my bow and that I wanted to do it spot and stock. So, um, what's unusual about that is most folks do it out of a boat. Um, so, um, I wanted to do it on land spot and stock and I had trouble even finding anybody that wanted to take me to do that because it's just not that common. Right. Um, and then I convinced one of my girlfriends, um, to come along with me and she was going to shoot one, you know, out of a boat and, um, while we were there and, um, (laughs) I, I think I like permanently scarred her for life after, after this experience, because she was just, I mean, she said she never felt like such full terror in her life, but she was a trooper and she stayed by my side We're down to Florida and, um, we, uh, you know, you, you'd start talking to the, the guides and stuff down there and we had to, you know, switch out our arrows and had to be an 850 grain arrow with this 250 grain, um, broadhead on it. And the broad, the gator broadheads are, um, not like a normal broadhead. They don't just go in. They, you know, they have little blades that come out so they can't come back out once they go gotcha, in, which okay. would be, you know, barbed, like more than barbed, almost like a grappling hook in a way, but, right. you know, something that wouldn't be legal, you know, um, in Alaska. But, sure. um, so we get this full setup and, you know, kind of get sighted in with that and, and realize, you know, if I'm going to penetrate this alligator, I got to be like 15 yards or less, basically, right. you know, right. at this point, like with this heavy arrow and my pound at that point, I think I was shooting 54, 56 pounds. So, okay. you know, I'm going to have to be really close to, to get this thing. And, um, so we tried a few different methods. This went on for, for several days, you know, we tried, um, stalking in on them and you know we would spook them and they would flip down in the water or we would um, sit and call which is you know really um rather intimidating because you get down in the the swamp and you you're calling and they use a a baby gator distress call uh, because the males eat the babies right and so they're you know they're doing a baby gator distress call and and you see, you know, well, here's one coming up the, the waterway on the left, but also here's one coming up the waterway on the right at the same time. And they're both beelining for you and you see their little eyes peeking out and you're like, holy shit, what if these both get here at the same time? Like, how is this <laughs> exactly going to go down for us? You right. know, and you kind of, you get nerve, pretty nervous about it. And, um, you know, things would, stocks would get blown or they'd get spooked or they wouldn't come all the way in or they'd come in. And they wouldn't get all the way to the shore and we'd realize maybe they weren't, you know, that big and, um, you know, kind of go through a, a few days of it. And about the fourth day, we're kind of out on this um, peninsula and it's me and Jamie and the guide out there. And, you know, first we're kind of almost crawling through the the weeds to get down onto it. And uh, Jamie's already fairly freaked out because we don't really have spiders per se in Alaska. Like we got some daddy long legs. We, you know, there's nothing big up here. There's nothing that can bite you or whatever. And, right. and they, they got like these friggin' banana spiders that are like, you know, the size of your hand. Yeah. Well, that, like, opposite we're, like, climates, terrible. right? Yeah. Uh, completely right. opposite so, climates. 
for we're Alaskan girls, like we're like, shit, you know, we're just freaking out there. And they're in the grasses. So you're crawling in between them, which is fairly freaky. And then I'm crawling along and I see this snake, you know, right there on my right hand side as I'm crawling. And um, so I kind of motioned to her because she's behind me crawling and she's like, oh, my God, you know, we're quiet. And we go through and um, we kind of get down in the bushes and I whisper to the guide, hey, there's, you know, there's a snake over there, like. 10 feet away. He's like, Oh, I'm sure. It's fine. No big deal. And, uh, <laughs> and then, he, and then uh, like a couple minutes go by and he goes, what'd it look like? <laughs> and I kind of just, I kind of describe it to him and he gets this weird look on his face. So he like crawls over and then he crawls back and he goes, that's poisonous. Don't go over there. <laughs> and we look at each other like, what the hell are you talking about? Don't go over there. It's like 10 feet away. It can just slither over here at any moment. Like we're down in the weeds. The weeds are over our heads. So right then, I mean, I knew I'd already lost Jamie at that point. She's like done. She's like ready to get out of there. So we're laying down in the weeds and he starts calling and, you know, we can see to the left a gator's come and we can see kind of straight out a gator's come and we can see on the right a gator's come. We're like, holy, there's three of them out there coming towards us. And you can kind of see the, the little trail in the water as they're coming at you. And we get kind of focused on this one that's coming in from the left, it's coming in the, the fastest. And the, the weeds are tall, you know, we're kneeling down, but they're over our heads and we're kind of trying to peek through and it's getting pretty close to the shore. And uh, Jamie's like behind us and she keeps tapping him. Hey, 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 there's something, there's something over here. She's pointing behind her on the right. And he's like, no, no, there's nothing over there. There's nothing over there. She's like, yeah, there's something over there. There's something over there. And he's like, shut up. Like, stop. Like, there's nothing over there. And then all of a sudden, there is this. She goes, there's a paw. (laughs) (laughs) I think it should have been claw, but she called it a paw. But And we look, and there's like, you can see his claw, like, right there, like, feet away from us. And all of a sudden, there's this big splash, and this gator jumps in the water. It had been just a few feet away from us on our right-hand side had snuck in on us. Uh, He splashes and and goes in and the guide goes, that was like a 12 foot gator. And (laughs) we're thinking, you got to be freaking kidding me. (laughs) Like, first of all, they can jump, you know, they can launch and jump. So I'm thinking that could have jumped on us at any time. None of us even knew it was there. So we're just rattled. So she's like, Oh hell no. Oh hell no. And she starts standing up by this time. The one on the left is all the way up to the shore. So it's now only maybe five, six feet away from us. Mm. So I don't want that thing thinking we're a little tasty morsel in the bushes there and then jumping at us. So I grab a hold of the back of her belt loop on her pants and I'm like, sit down. I'm like pulling her down. And she's like almost hyperventilating. Like she wants out of there. She's done with it. And, uh, the guide's like, Oh, it's too small. You know, it's only like seven or eight feet. And he's like, shoot it right in the front of its head. Like what? Why? Why would I do that? Just shoot it in its head. It'll bounce right off. So I'm like, okay. So I stand up, I shoot it. I shoot with my arrow and it literally hits it in the head. And that 850 grain arrow with that 250 grain broadhead hits it in its head and it bounces off like, like rubber, you know, just boom, doesn't even penetrate. It just bounces off. The gator spins around and goes back in the water. Jamie jumps up and just runs right up the bank, (laughs) like all the way up the bank. And I, I'm like, what the hell was that? And he's like, ah, he's like laughing, you know, it was funny. It just, it scared it off. It was too small. And I'm thinking, dude, what are you doing? Like, she's terrified, you know? So I, I run back up the bank and she's like, I'm not doing this anymore. She's like, I love you. You're my friend. I came here to support you. Like, 
our lives are in danger. <laughs> like I'm done. And I'm thinking she's a freaking trooper, you know, like this wasn't her thing. This was my bucket list, not her bucket list. And she's doing her best to, to be there for me. Kind of calm her down, had a little vodka that night chatted it out <laughs> and then uh you know next morning we get up and she's like i'm gonna run the video camera we had brought a video camera but i don't i mean i film stuff but i never do anything with it i just have a bunch of videos of a, of a bunch of my hunts but it's just for me so i'm like all right yeah film it. that'd be cool so she's like i'm gonna stay way up on the ridge up here above y'all and i'm gonna film you know while while you guys hunt okay you know that that's perfect so next day we we see this big gator and he's like sunning himself on the side of this lake. And um, so we go way up around him. We come down ab above him and we're sneaking down again, really high weeds all around us. We're crouched down. We're sneaking in, you know, down there. She's filming us. Um, and we get almost to him and he spooks and he jumps in the water and I'm like, Shit, not again. But, but this guy was like, he was ready to go for it. So he spins around and he comes back up. Now he's kind of got his, just his face back up on the land and he's looking up at us and we're hunched down in the weeds. And, uh, and the guide's like, um, I think he thinks you might be something, you know, you're about his size. I think, you know, like he thinks maybe I might be a little tasty morsel for him. So I'm like, well, maybe I can use that to my advantage, you know, to get him up there. Yeah. So I thought this is going to be my opportunity. And so, the guide stayed where he was and I just felt really, really calm, like really good. I just started going, you know, all crouched down and I just started going down through the weeds and staying low and he's coming and I'm coming and we're going to meet in the middle basically. And he just kept coming up on land and Jamie's, you know, filming the whole thing. Well, I guess she thought because the weeds were so high, she didn't know that I knew he was coming. You know, gotcha. she thought I could only see that I was stalking down in on him. So the video is like the funniest ever, because on the video, she starts having like a panic attack and she decides she's going to run down the hill, I guess, to save me or I don't know what she was doing. She's a long ways away. So the, what could have been a really great video of this hunt is the weeds and the camera whipping in all directions, her hyperventilating saying, he's going to eat you. Oh my God, he's going to eat you. Oh my God. And her panicking <laughs> and running down this grassy hill. I'm like, you're the worst cameraman ever. But, but so I, I stalked down, I get stalked down on him and he's coming up and he's pushed up, you know, when they walk and they push and their chin is up, which exposes that nice soft belly on the underside. So instead of having to shoot him in that soft spot in the back of the head, I can plunk it right in that, nice soft area underneath so i pop up i just i draw as i'm coming you know as i'm standing so i'm at full draw by the time i stand up well he's at six yards he's right in front of me mm. so i just pop him right in the chest and as soon as that arrow hits him he takes off which they is normal you know they feel safest in the water so he spins around and runs to go back into the water well, the line comes off my bow and then there's a buoy that's supposed to pop off the end. Yep. Well, it jammed on the end. And so I had my hand up in a wrist sling because I always shoot with a wrist sling. Right. Well, the force of that gator taking off and that rope getting tight, I couldn't get my hand out of the wrist sling. So he runs for the water and he... I, I'm dragging behind him. So he's dragging me. So I got a wounded gator on a rope attached to my bow of which I can't get my hand out of. And it's dragging me to the water and the guide takes off running after me. And he actually ran all the way up and got my, 
pulled on the line, got my hand, my arm released, and then he ran with my bow all the way out to his thighs before he snapped the end of that stabilizer piece off and broke it Wow! to get it off of my bow. And I'm laying there like, what the frick just happened to me? Like, oh my God, like so freaking scary and so much energy. And then wow. I stand, I stand up. He, the guy comes walking up out of the water. He's shaking. He's like, what the frick just happened? And we grab a hold of each other and we're hugging. And then Jamie pops the camera up and on the video it goes, oh, yay. <laughs> and that's the only part of the whole video that she got was us hugging. And I'm like, we watched it that night and I'm like, you're the worst cameraman ever. That could have been the coolest video. Wow. <laughs> but instead it's her having a panic attack in the grass and then us hugging. So then, you know, so by then I'm like, wow, like that was insane. So he's out in the lake and you can see the buoy. So we had to go around, get an airboat, launch it into the lake and then go out and grab the buoy rope and pull while he's like death rolling in the rope. And we had to pull him up to the surface. And then I drew and shot another arrow into him. And then we pull him up on the side and we, um, I just sliced through. He was dead, but you don't bring him in without doing this. I just sliced through the bloodline in the back of his head. And then we pulled him into the boat. But that was honestly the most, I mean, that whole week, really, the tensions of, of leading up to it and the close calls. And then that was the scariest hunt that I've ever been on. I mean, the most adrenaline filled craziest thing that I've ever done crazier than shooting a brown bear with your bow that hunt will always <laughs> I hope that I never have anything crazier than that I mean it really was the most terrifying um thing that I've ever been through and uh but I did it <laughs> and I got my gator and he I mounted him like a rug <laughs> he's 11 11 foot long <laughs> all the way across my wall and there's probably not a lot of people in alaska that have gators on their wall wow so. <laughs> what a story yeah. crazy good story <laughs> Cra- probably like one of the top two best stories i've ever heard right <laughs> johnny Thanks. tell one hell of a story <laughs> and and here's the crazy part now i want to do it <laughs> <laughs> it's phenomenal <laughs> great story Thanks. All right. Let's uh let's move on to the 10 rapid fire questions. I'll let Dusty load them up here and fire away. All right, I'm nervous. <laughs> Johnny, we haven't prepped you for these and you haven't heard them, have you? No. <laughs> Very good. Your number one best hunting tip. Uh, um, uh these are supposed to be rapid fire. My number one best hunting tip. Always make an ethical shot and take the, you should always think about the animal first before yourself. If it's not ethical and it's not going to be a one shot kill, you shouldn't be doing it. Very good. One thing that you cannot hunt without other than a firearm or a bow. Chapstick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm addicted to chapstick. (laughs) (laughs) What's your biggest pet peeve in life? Oh, whistling. I cannot stand when someone whistles. Or does it have to be hunting related? <laughs> oh, that's very good whistling. That's a first. <laughs> yeah, that's a first. <laughs> Johnny, at, at the young age of 25 that you're at now, what would you tell your, <laughs> what would you tell your 18-year-old self knowing what you know today? Oh, gosh. Um, just 
not to take yourself too seriously, I think, or not to let yourself get too bent up on stuff, stuff that's important to you that you think is the end of the world when you're 18, when you're older, just is uh, laughable. Right. You meet a stranger in a hotel lobby or at a convention. They ask, what do you do for a living? What do you say? Um, I would say that I, I own a women's um, lifestyle clothing line that's inspired by the outdoors. What did you have for breakfast? <laughs> Grits. Grits in Alaska? No kidding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You get your own billboard on the side of the highway, a blank canvas. What would it say? Oh, gosh. Be kind. I think, um, I don't know, I think in general that uh, people tend to forget to just treat each other with kindness. You just never know what what's going on with somebody or what they're going through and uh, don't assume the worst about them. Just be kind. I say the word successful. Who's the first person that pops in your mind and why? Um, my parents, I guess. I just look up to both of them and I think that they are the epitome of, of starting from, from nothing and, and making a good life for themselves. I'm not, I'm not sure that to me successful is, is money, but it's a, um, you know, it's a family, it's, it's love, it's doing, doing good for others and uh, having a purpose and a meaning to your life. Very good. What's a day in your life look like? Um, well, <laughs> I guess it depends on the day, but uh, a business day for me would be, um, you know, responding to, to customer um, emails, doing some social media stuff, um, working on I'm constantly designing. I'm always, I'm the only designer for my clothing line. So I'm constantly designing new stuff. So working on designs, getting orders prepped, um, sending out orders and, uh, and, but from a non-business standpoint, um, spending some good quality time with my bulldog, who's my best friend. And um, depending on the time of the year, maybe riding my Harley. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What's a hunting day in your life look like? Uh, well, hopefully successful. <laughs> no, I, um, I, well, it depends where, where I'm hunting at, I guess, but hopefully, um, off the grid somewhere in a camp with, with good friends and whether I'm hunting or I'm just there to support somebody else, just, uh, making good memories with, uh, people that I care about. Very good. Well, that wraps up the 10 rapid fire questions. <laughs> well done, Johnny. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Those hey. are hard. <laughs> I'm going to get into uh, real quick, Jay, before we wrap things up, to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Rock Scarlet Outdoors. Johnny, what, tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so it's um, it's Rock Starlet Outdoors, and um, it's um, it's a clothing brand. I initially started it. It was Rock Starlet Bow Hunting um, when I owned the archery store, and um, it was a you know a women's clothing line that was archery and bow hunting beast. Um, lifestyle clothing, not outerwear clothing. It's just fun, um, you know, um, hunting themed clothing um, that you would wear in your daily life that represents your passions. And after I sold the archery store, I expanded it into Rockstar Let Outdoors. So I really could include um, women that gun hunt and fish and camp and hike and bike and motocross and, you know, all kinds of other um, things like that. And um, it's, it's really two facets. One is, um, the clothing brand and and the team of really incredible women that I've put together from from all over the country and it's um, all about empowering women and encouraging them in the outdoors, but also just that that idea of kindness. There's a lot of negativity and and nasty stuff on on the internet that that I don't care for and I don't care for 
the competitive um, nature of, of women in the outdoors on social media. This is a group of women that believe in my philosophies, which are being kind, supporting others, um, and and being encouraging and inspiring. And everybody started somewhere. Every, so a lot of people are new, and they need somebody that that hasn't done these activities, that needs some advice, that just helping other people. And I just, I design clothes that are fun, that have shotgun shells and arrows and deer heads and say things like provider and, and, you know, thing, you know, encourage, inspire, empower, which is our, our company motto, but they're, they're clothes that women would wear in their daily life that represent their, their passion for the outdoors. They're not necessarily outdoor clothing. They're, they're day wear, but, but it's things that make you proud of being an outdoors woman. Very good. Where can we find more about uh, Rock Scarlet Outdoors? Um, so we have a, a Facebook and an Instagram, and then we have a, a website, which is rockstarletoutdoors.com, which is where we have um, all the clothing online there. And I also, a couple times a year, I put together groups um, to go and do hunts together and camps and, and fishing trips and things like that. And I always go along. And um, if women are nervous, I, I'll sit with them. I'll not do my hunt. And I, I mean, I've taken groups of women to Africa and I've sat with women in the blind that were nervous and coached them. I've done that um, a couple different times. Um, I've taken groups on bear hunts, turkey hunts. We've done fishing trips. We've done big camping, you know, four wheeling adventures and just trying to get groups of women together to, to do those adventures together is also, um, it's something that's important to me. And I think when you become, um, an experienced outdoors woman, um, I think you owe it to other ladies to to reach back and give them a hand and help them to to get that experience too. So it's kind of um, there's both of those facets to the business, but it's rockstarletoutdoors.com is is where all of our our stuff's online there. Very good, very good, very good. I'm so glad that we put this together. This has been one of I the really most appreciate it. entertaining hour and eighteen minutes I think I've had <laughs> in my entire life. Been fun. I, um, been a lot I didn't fun. know if I had any any stories to tell or anything to say, but I guess I did. <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, I think you told some really, <laughs> and I think you have more to tell. That's that's the that's the kicker part. Um, but no, it's yeah. been great. I really enjoyed talking to you, Johnny. And um, the I think you're an inspiration, and I, I just I love that you're you're just as inspired to be outside every day as anybody I ever met and that you're making changes in your life to make sure that that still happens, uh, despite some of the setbacks that you've had with your, your illness. So, um, just keep doing it. I love, I love your passion. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Very good. And if we had more questions or if listeners are listening to this, where should we go to reach out to you? Um, so, um, I have my own, besides my business one, I have my own, um, Instagram. So it's, R B G R R R L R B girl. So it okay. was when I had Rockstar at bow hunting. So girl, like growl girl, I guess. Right, right. But, um, <laughs> and then um, I have a Facebook, which is Johnny Marie bow hunting. Um, so those are places that people can, can always contact me. And I, I try to post, I mean, I hope I post things that are real on there. I try to um, post about some of my struggles and stuff sometimes. And, and I like, you know, I like connecting with other people that, that are also going through an illness or a disability or whatever, and they're still um, getting out and getting outdoors. I think we um, can inspire each other. And mm-hmm. I've had a lot of people reach out to me um, through social media and are just so many incredible people that, that inspire me to keep doing it too. And so I love I love connecting with people on there. So um, I'd love for people to 
to reach out to me there. Awesome. Very good. Well, I appreciate you stepping into Big Buck Studios here and spending uh, an hour or so with us, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Johnny for coming on the show and stepping into the studios and giving us an explanation as to this this rare disease that she has and how she's dealing with it on a day-to-day basis so that she can still continue to enjoy her lifestyle of hunting and being outside. I don't know what I'd do if I was told I only had two years to live, but I think it's probably going to look something like what Johnny did in this scenario. We definitely wish Johnny the best of luck, and hopefully we'll check in with her now and then to see where she's at, and then, and hopefully her, her move to Arizona will help fix some of those situations that she has when she challenges the element and exposure to the cold. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week? Yeah, Jay, I've got a tip of the week this week. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morsessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. God, you know, it's the end of season, all the hunting activity settling down, turkey season's coming, but uh, you got to also be a conservationist on your tree stands. And if you've got ladder stands that are up in the trees, you know, we got uh, an eight-month period here that the stand's going to be sitting there dormant if you leave them out. And be courteous to the tree. Go out and loosen up your straps and give them that room to make that half inch to three quarter inch of growth without embedding your stand into the bark and doing damage and possibly killing the tree. So if you got a minute, you and your buddies go out, hit the woods and uh, just take and climb up in your ladder stands and release your ratchet. Just give it that room to grow and, and think about the, uh, the tree uh, advancing to a bigger size before next season starts. And it just, uh, it's easier on your gear and it's easier on the tree. Keep that in mind. That's good. That's a good tip. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, shoot me an email, dusty at bigbuckregistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, jay at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice, let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckredstreet.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. 
and this is the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>